This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, The Great Resignation continues, motivating the multi-generational workforce and the summer blockbuster season, the hits and misses so far. But first, it is the Canada Day long weekend. As we celebrate our nation's 156th birthday, some of us think back to how it all got started. History tells us that Sir John A. Macdonald was our nation's first prime minister, the founder of our country. He had a great deal to do with the writing of our constitution. He unified the country and expanded it from the Pacific to the Atlantic. But there is a darker side to Sir John A., as historians and scholars are now unearthing some pretty shocking details about his involvement with the creation of residential schools. As a result, there are growing demands that all tributes to Canada's first PM be eradicated, including the now boarded-up statue of him at the foot of Queen's Park. Steve Bacon is an award-winning Canadian journalist, a celebrated author, fearless documentary producer, and the founding host of TVO's flagship current affairs program, The Agenda with Steve Bacon. He joins us now with the legacy and the controversy, Sir John A. Macdonald. Welcome to the feed, Steve. It is a pleasure to share a microphone with you. And it's a pleasure to share my Canada Day weekend with you, Anne. Thanks very much for the invitation. Lovely. You know, I I was taken by, well, I'm always taken by things you write and you record and you you do live. But this was interesting. You once wrote, history never sits still. How would that apply Hmm. to Sir John A. Macdonald? Well, uh, let me start with this. I remember, and I think it's only about eight years ago now, that I was part of a group of, just a, a small group of history nuts who saw the bicentennial of Sir Johnny McDonald's birthday coming up, and there didn't appear to be any didn't appear to be any organization in the country, not the federal government, nothing going on in particular that would recognize the 200th birthday of the founder of our country, and and so we just took it upon ourselves to do it, and we started a bunch of different dinners. I think the first year we, we did it sort of for practice. We had 11 people show up. I think the next year we maybe had 50. The next year we had 100, and then finally, on the bicentennial, which I think was uh, 11th of January 2015, we had 400 people in the Royal York, so all that practice did well. And we had this really great celebration acknowledging McDonald's uh, place in our history. And do I have to tell you that if the bicentennial were this year, none of that would have taken place, none of that could have taken place? So when you want to say history doesn't sit still, boy, is that true. Just eight years ago, McDonald had a much more unambiguously positive um, um, appreciation among Canadians of his role in the start of the country. And here we are eight years later, and as you point out in the intro, he's got a statue boarded up on the south lawn of Queen's Park because we don't really know how to treat him anymore, do we? What was his involvement in the creation of residential schools? You know, I don't know that I have a great answer for that. there, but I, I think the bigger issue is, the bigger issue writ large is that McDonald was a man for his time, and, and at that time, and we're going back more than a century and a half now, uh, there were a lot of morals and values that obviously would not stand up to how we feel about things today. And, and McDonald was, as a man of his time, somebody who, uh, on the one hand, held views that would not have been at all acceptable, uh, but on the other hand, had some fairly progressive views given his time. He was the guy who said that women ought to have the right to vote, and he tried to get that through Parliament and couldn't. So uh, on the one hand, um, 
I think his his uh, relationships with indigenous Canadians and what his views on residential schools were uh, would have been completely inconsistent with this time. But on other things, um, he was ahead of his time. Steve, is it true that residential schools have been supported by every Canadian government from Johnny MacDonald to Pierre Trudeau? Is that true? Yeah, that is in fact the case. And uh, now, when, we, when you say the word supported, um, you know, I think we have to be careful how we use that word. There are certainly some governments that were more active in the creation of and the perpetuation of residential schools, and that there are others, you know, perhaps Pierre Trudeau, where they were they existed on his watch, but I'm not sure how much effort his government actually took into keeping them going. I also have to say, and this will be somewhat controversial, that that I've talked to, obviously, in the course of my job, I've talked to numerous Indigenous people over the years, um, many of whom have horror stories to share about what happened in Indigenous schools, and others who say they got a decent education and it didn't turn out so badly. Um, I just put that on the record for what it's worth. Yeah. Uh, residential schools are a sorry, horrific chapter of Canada's history, and all we can do to better understand what happened then uh, to people who, in many cases, had their kids scooped up from them and put in these schools, and the kids were, were mistreated and even tortured in these schools. That's something we all need to know more about. And thankfully, we're, you know, because history never sits still, Anne, we're having an opportunity to have those conversations today. How should the school system that we have today, public school, private schools, uh, Catholic schools, it's quite diverse, and I think about right across this country, how should those in a position to teach, how should they be teaching their students about Sir John A. Macdonald? What should they be saying about him? Well, I think we should be doing our best to, to describe his entire record. Mm. I think we should be saying that without Sir John A. Macdonald, there is no Canada. That's important to know. But I think we should also be saying, because we don't want to sugarcoat history, MacDonald was a man of his time. And there's a lot of what he believed back then that would not stand up to scrutiny today. And I think we're capable of holding... I remember interviewing Michael Ignatieff, the former liberal leader, about this, Anne, and this was, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago about a book that he'd written. And he said, we need to be capable of having two competing thoughts in our head at the same time. We need to be able to understand that there is no Canada without Sir John MacDonald, but he wasn't perfect. And, and maybe he doesn't deserve to be on the $10 bill anymore, and maybe they deserve, maybe, you know, there shouldn't be so many statues of him all around the country. Not that there are very many. So many of them have been taken down. And maybe we do need to rename some stuff, um, as happened in Ottawa, you know, a couple of weeks ago, where they renamed the Sir Johnny McDonald Parkway after, uh, with uh, an Indigenous name. And, and this is the nature of evolving history, right? So, some things that have been important in past decades, um, you know, are, are, are reinterpreted, or we discover that there are other things that are more important, and we want to honor those as well. So there's nothing inconsistent about saying MacDonald uh, was, an imp- was, a, was a crucial, was a singularly important, crucial figure in the history of Canada, while at the same time saying he wasn't perfect, he wasn't a god, he wasn't a myth. You know, he's a real person who lived in a real time and with all of the stereotypes and, and biases that, that that time included. Queen's Park, at the foot of Queen's Park, there is a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald, as we've mentioned, and it's been boarded up. There's a, a statement that's been posted to the boxing of the statue, and it reads, Though we cannot change the history we have inherited, we can shape the history we wish to leave behind. How do you feel about that? 
I think that's fine. I think that, uh, not the fact that the statue's boarded up, I don't think that's no. fine at all. <laughs> yeah. I think they should do something about that one way or another. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that at our seat of government for the province of Ontario, there is this ugly eyesore of a boarded up statue on the South Lawn uh, because a bunch of politicians in there don't know what to do about it. Now, I think from what I hear, there's a committee that's been charged with holding hearings this summer on what to do with it. Uh, to me, it seems like there's three options. I mean, take the cladding off and let people see who's there, or take the statue away because you're too concerned about it being vandalized or McDonald, a statue of McDonald's no longer appropriate in the view of, of the politicians there. Or do what a lot of places in, for example, the United States are doing nowadays, particularly in the former Confederate States of America, which is to say you leave the statues up because they do prompt people to ask questions and have discussions, and they are opportunities for learning, but you put a plaque beside the statue contextualizing uh, more than just the fact that he was the first Prime Minister of Canada. And I don't know. I think people who are in a rush to take all these statues down don't appreciate the fact that if you do take them all down, you are really denying people an opportunity to learn something about history. And by that, I mean the whole story. So uh, I don't know what way the politicians are going to go at Queen's Park. I ultimately have no idea what they're going to choose to do. Uh, apparently, it's taken three years to get to this point because the governing conservatives and the opposition New Democrats can't agree on what to do, and so they're finally holding hearings on this right now. But it seems that more and more places you go, the idea of putting a plaque up and contextualizing the history around the person in question uh, seems to increasingly be the way to go, and um, we'll see what they do there. And is there something that we can do as citizens, as people who want to know more about history as it as it continues to be a moving target, if you will? And I think about someone like Julie Black, who ch has changed if in her mm -hmm. singing the national anthem to our home on native land. And there were mixed reviews about that, but I honestly, just as a, as a person who watches and, and absorbs everything going on around her, around me, I think it took a lot of bravery to do what she did. I agree. I found it an intriguing choice, and um, and it got people discussing it, right, which I think is a wonderful thing. The more we can discuss history and not be sort of prisoners to it, but to understand that it is an evolving thing and an opportunity for people to learn more about the history of their country, that's a, that's a great thing. Uh, it's funny, eh? It doesn't have to be a history professor at university or in high school. Uh, it doesn't have to be a, bu a bunch of politicians at Queen's Park. Sometimes it could be a singer yeah. just changing one word of the national anthem to provoke people to have a good discussion about these things. So um, I'm all for that. That was intriguing. It moved mountains in my heart, that's for sure. Good. That's what it's supposed to do. So July 1st, Canada Day. This weekend, it commemorates the anniversary of the Constitution Act, which consolidated three territories into the single nation of Canada. So in other words, it made us this country and we are forever grateful 156 years young we are what does canada day and this weekend mean to you steve well it means a bunch of things and i don't mind telling you that it means a bunch of different things today than it would have 10 or 20 years ago i think i would have had a much more like many canadians many if i can use this expression settler canadians uh I, we would have had a much more unambiguously positive view of canada exclusively. And I think it's okay to say in 2023 that Canada Day for me, and I suspect for millions of others, 
is a day to celebrate the fact that we live in one of the most successful countries in the history of the world. You can't take that away from the people who've built this country over the last 156 years, and frankly, and before that. You know, we, we, we made Confederation in 1867, but Canada didn't start then. Uh, obviously, there was a responsible government and, and, and a, a great deal of lead-up that led us to 1867. But let's go back even further. You know, the, the, the indigenous contribution to this land is something that we are now all more keenly aware of. And we need to both celebrate that, be aware of it, and also understand that there's a lot of work left to do on that. So that's all of, you know, those competing notions are in my head this weekend, and that's okay. We're not only one thing in this country. We're not only a light unto nations, which I think we are. I think we're a magnificent experiment of multiculturalism that the world could learn from. But we're also a country that's got a lot of problems that still need solving, and we should get on that. And okay, let's think about that this weekend. Hmm. Thank you for your words, your advice, your thoughts. I really, really appreciate it, Steve Pakin. Thanks for joining us on the feed. It is always a delight to be with you, Ann Romer. And please, as I always say, give my love to that wonderful father of yours, who's uh, such a legend uh, in the history of this province and this country. If you have plans to cross the border this weekend, Glenn Perkins with the do's and don'ts. Whether you are going down south for Independence Day or taking a longer trip, Tamara Lopez with the Canada Border Services Agency says although cannabis is legal in Canada, travelers should not return with any in their luggage. Uh, the basis for that is that we have the don't bring it in, don't take it out. So if you are bringing cannabis across any international border and across our borders in any form, including the oils containing THC or anything with CBD, without a permit or exemption that's authorized by Health Canada, that could be a serious criminal offense, which could lead to arrest and prosecution. Now, despite the fact that cannabis is legal in Canada, you still would need to have that authorization in order to travel with it, the one by Health Canada. A medical prescription from a doctor does not count as Health Canada authorization. If someone was caught bringing cannabis into the country, what would the first step be? The first step at the border would be that if the item is discovered and it is considered to be an illegal item under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, then the drug would be seized, of course, as evidence, and the person may face arrest, detention, and potential prosecution. And that would be happening right at the front line. So if someone, again, does have this item, could potentially face arrest and detention, and the item would be seized. Tamara, your department mainly deals with people coming into the country. How about Canadians going abroad? For sure, and I'm not able to speak about what customs regulations are for any other country, but again, people need to verify the country that they are going to, what they can and cannot bring in to that country. Because if they do show up there, for example, with an item that is considered to be prohibited or regulated, then they could face issues over in that other country. But again, everyone has to check, oh, hi, I'm traveling to X country, can I bring in cannabis? Or can I even bring in, for example, my pet? Some countries wouldn't even allow you to bring in a family pet, for example. So it's always up to the traveler to do some research to find out if that's allowed of where they're going. This is a busy weekend for travel. People who are going away to other countries, when they come back, what should they not be bringing back home with them? Uh, the pretty standard ones you see are things like anything like weapons or things that could be used as a weapon. Um, 
knives or anything sharp like that. It should not be, for example, like in a suitcase, unless it's, for example, you picked up some sort of a souvenir uh, I can explain, or you'll declare you have the item, oh, I have this uh, knife that I picked up, say if you're coming back from Japan, and you picked up, for example, one of the beautiful katana swords that they might have, and you put that on display because you're a collector. But you let someone know that you had that, so there wouldn't be any surprises when your bag shows up and you show up and there's something there that would we may classify as some sort of a, a weapon or something sharp-edged that wasn't declared. So make sure that you declare everything that you have. Obviously, any sort of illegal narcotic would definitely not be something you'd be packing to bring back for sure. Sometimes they should also verify what sorts of food and plants and animals are also not allowed to be brought in. That's constantly updated. People can always check the automated import reference system, also known as AIRS, to see if I can bring in, for example, that sausage from the United Kingdom right now, or can I even bring in flowers from California? So it's very specific, again, it's what the item is, and that the website's constantly updated, and that's the best bet for you to find out what you can and cannot bring in in terms of food, plant, and animal. Uh, and then, again, if they have a lot of more information, you can always check our website as to what I can and cannot pack, which is, of course, cbsa.gc.ca. Not bringing those items you mentioned is important. People don't realize they could be bringing diseased items with them. Yes. This is why, again, people not realize that we look at the health of Animals Act or the Plant Protection Act. We look at things like CITES, the Convention for National Trade of Endangered Species. All of these sorts of acts and regulations and legislation we have to enforce as frontline officers. And yes, it could be a concern for us. For example, we knew years ago that people were bringing wood that was untreated. So even still, untreated wood is a concern for us because that can uh, be a vector or house species that we consider to be invasive and end up coming over into Canada and eating all of our wood. And we know that uh, lumber is a very big export of ours, so that damages our economy when that happens. And that's why there's a concern. Or, for example, we have, of course, grapes that we grow uh, for wine country. And if you were to bring in grapes that may have uh, the vines attached and maybe there's a particular pest associated or disease with that vine, and then that takes out all of the crops that we have here in Canada, again, destroying our economy and that industry. That's why we have the checks and balances for us to verify all of this at the, at the port, port of entry, so we don't introduce anything that could be harmful to uh, anyone living here in this country. If people are coming back across the border from the U.S., is there anything that they can do to help ease the process? Uh, just again, be aware and declare if you are traveling. Check our website for any border wait times just to make sure that you are going through the most efficient border crossing. Of course, it is a long weekend, so there may be increased traveler volume, but we ensure that we are always fully staffed and we're constantly monitoring the system to make sure there's always staffing in place to make sure that you have a seamless border experience. Tamara Lopez with the Canada Border Services Agency. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Oh, you're welcome. No problem, Glenn. This is 105.9 The Region. Coming up next on the feed, the cash-strapped workforce. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The cost of living is forcing many to look for new jobs and side hustles. Kevin Frankish with the survey results. There are many technical terms used by economists that define the economy that we're in. The most appropriate description, wacky. Yes, wacky. 
Daily, we're bombarded by reports that we're headed towards recession. We're already in a recession. Inflation is in check. Inflation is out of control. Soaring interest rates will take care of that. No, they won't. One thing is for sure, it's an economy of change. PwC is out with its annual Global Workforce Hopes and Fears survey that shows the great resignation is continuing and we're digging ourselves into debt that puts us at the top for debt load in the G7. G. McClellan is a workforce platform leader and solution leader for PwC Canada and joins me now from Calgary. Hi, Jean. Hello, how are you? I am fine. Make some sense out of this for me, would you? Yes, uh, there's, there's a few things going on, but we definitely see that employees are restless. So our survey says that about 26% of employees intend to switch their jobs in the next 12 months. And if you're even younger, that's that is higher. It jumps to 35%. Wow. And so through the, the, the downturn, the economic turmoil, the uh, challenges that we're having in our economy, uh, what we're seeing is that's taking a toll on employees in the workforce. Now, we should point out, this is a pretty large survey, the Global Workforce Hopes and Fears Survey uh, for 2023, uh, details uh, nearly 54,000 workers in 46 countries and territories, including here in Canada. Was there anything that stood out with the survey results with Canadian workers, or is this kind of a a, a North American uh, thing or a worldwide thing? Yes, most of the most of the results actually hold true for Canada, just as they do for our global colleagues. Uh, so we saw a lot of consistency in the data. There are a few things uh, that we are seeing are different and we can talk about those today and we have a few that will roll out as we move through the summer as well. Now, of course, it, it does very much speak about the great resignation. So that is what we have seen um, since the pandemic, where people are looking for jobs that fit more of their lifestyle and money isn't always the, the, the most important factor. So we're seeing this great resignation continuing. Yes. In Canada, it was interesting during COVID, the great resignation happened in a different way. We definitely saw it in pockets. It wasn't as pervasive as we saw in other countries. However, that employee restlessness was something that was consistent globally, and we're seeing that build again. And really what it is saying is that employers have to stay vigilant, right? It's a little bit of a call to action to say, please be diligent on the reward systems that you have. Are you creating meaningful work for your employees? And are you creating environments where they can connect in a, in a really thoughtful way so that they create friends in that workforce environment as well? And that will make them want to stay because what it, what this economic downturn has done is it's really maybe created a false sense of strength in our employers, right? And the minute that we start seeing an upswing in our economy, we also may see a lot of our great talent move on to other things and other opportunities. We have not seen something like this in a very long time, an atmosphere in which employers are being advised and CEOs are being advised to reinvent the workplace if they want to keep good workers. Yes, we are definitely seeing that environment now. 
there are some fundamental shifts in our business world that are also creating that. Um, 39% of CEOs actually are saying that their business models will be irrelevant in 10 years. Wow. And that is driving huge transformation agendas right across the globe. Canada is no exception. And really that also paired with the fact that there are different expectations that employees have now of their employers. Um, those two forces working together are creating an environment where we really have to think about what we're doing in our work environment in a much more diligent way than we have in the past. Two other uh, stats that are revealed in your survey uh, work together and, and they show very opposite directions. First of all, the proportion of workers with money left over at the end of the month has fallen sharply. But at the same time, the workers who are struggling financially are the least likely to be prepared for economic change and artificial intelligence. And we know that, heck, not even 10 years from now, AI is going to dominate the workplace. These, these uh, facts that you pointed out are are very strong points to be considered by business and by employees. So first of all, you know, financial hardship is more widespread this year than in past years. And we we saw the employees struggling to pay their bills jump from 11% to 17%. And that's quite significant when we look at our data. That is adding economic stress into the work environment. And so as employees become more distracted with those things that are happening around us. Um, and they may become more distracted at work. And that might result in lower productivity, might result in more conflict in the workplace. In the workplace. It is absolutely something that employers need to be focused on. And it really does call into question, do you have a meaningful reward strategy? And are you, you know, are you paying your workers fairly? That is something that everyone should be thinking about as, as we move into this new era of work. The other piece of it, though, is really at the heart of employees themselves. What our data shows is that employees are probably underestimating the amount of disruption that they are going to experience in their own skills. So they are going to need to take on new skills, whether it is technology or technical skills, Generative AI is one of those uh, that is, you know, front and center that we see uh, every day in the media. The other thing is the human skills, complex problem solving, agility and resilience are also skills that will become incredibly important in the future and people aren't truly investing in them. Uh, so it's a wake up call for employees to say, please don't be complacent in where you are right now. You need to be investing in yourself so that you can stay gainfully employed. Now, the good news is, is those people who do invest in themselves and have those specialized skills are very attractive in the talent market as well. You're a numbers person, but because you're also a solutions leader, you're a people person. So, Jean, as, as you look at these numbers, how are we feeling and, and how are workers feeling? How are CEOs feeling in, in your thoughts, in your words? And yeah, I, I know that's I a tall that's a tall order, I know. But but I want to get your impression. Yeah, I you know the word that comes to mind is overwhelmed on both sides. 
Um, and so it really is a, a, a time in our lives where we have to pause and take stock and create space for us to think through what we're doing around our business strategies, but also how we're creating our workforce strategies. And then if we're the employee, what we're doing to better ourselves. Um, it, it is it is one of those times where there's so much coming at us. It is very easy to get caught in the whirlwind, in the tornado of our day-to-day lives. So, you know, that, that, that feeling of overwhelming um, kind of data, the feeling that is it's overwhelming change, we have to get into the driver's seat. So whether you're an employer or an employee, it, it really is the time for us to say, okay, let's take stock of our lives. Where do we need to go? What, what are the things that we do know that we can work on to get a little bit more of a sense of control back in our lives? That is such a, a perfect word, overwhelmed. I, I think, you know, in looking at this survey, it, it really describes to a T how everybody is feeling right now. And so I guess, like you say, the best thing to do is to pause and, and take stock. So Great advice, uh, an incredible, uh, incredible look into where we are today. Thank you for this. Thank you for the time. Gina McClellan, Workforce Platform Leader and Solution Leader for PwC Canada, has been speaking to me from Calgary. Shaliza Backus is next with the unique circumstances of the multi-generational workplace. The workforce is an interesting place to say the least and now we're kind of coming into this mixture of generations when you walk into your average office. You know, you've got the older Gen Xers who haven't reached the retirement age yet. You've got a bunch of millennials and now we've got the Gen Zetters coming into the picture as well and sometimes it's a little bit difficult to navigate and I even find myself saying like, oh, these kids, they don't understand and then that gets me wondering, does the generation above me think the same about me. So joining us to talk about this is Sandra Lavoie, Regional Director for Robert Half. How are you, Sandra? Very good. Thanks for having me. All right. Robert Half, the company, you conducted a survey about multi-generational workforce. Tell us about that. So what we did is we did this workforce type of survey to really find out the trends employers should know about with the multi-generational workforce. And what we found through this, the key findings were the number one thing that matters for almost all the generations, the least was the baby boomers, but everybody was about money, a competitive salary with regular increase base increases. That was really important with job satisfaction, of course, and retention for millennials uh, with the Gen X and Jet Z. Baby boomers really was, it was really about having a positive dynamic team. Money was important, but not as important as the other uh, workforce. So that was the number one finding. That's interesting to note. I just, I feel like, of course, everyone is concerned about money when it comes to their jobs. But now I kind of, I'm wondering, getting into the actual work, doing the actual work. Is there a difference in the way that all of these generations get the job done? Absolutely. What was very interesting is the Gen Z are really hoping and are craving for guidance, better guidance. They want to network, they want mentors, and they want all the other generations to really be in the office more because they feel they're missing out 
on a lot of these different experiences. That's interesting that you say that. I honestly thought it would be the opposite because they were kind of used to being in their shells. They were cut off from a lot over the last three years. So I thought maybe they would be more comfortable working from home. No, not at all. They want to be, you know, coaching and mentoring and so they can move their careers forward. What was interesting is 44% of them want more freedom. So if they want to come in at 10 o'clock and work till 6, they want more of that freedom, but they want the mentoring and coaching. That's interesting. And speaking of the mentoring and coaching, do you feel like it's well-received? Because as I mentioned off the top, there's some tension between generations sometimes. There is, but what is interesting, the Gen Z is really hungry for this. The Gen X are the generation that feel that they're most underpaid. That's interesting. And then where do the millennials fall into all this? And I, I, as a millennial myself, I feel like we kind of fall through the cracks sometimes because we kind of identify with qualities of both the generation before us and after us, and we kind of don't know where we fit sometimes. What was very interesting is with the AI really coming up, a lot of the AI is top of mind for millennials, and they're concerned that their jobs might be impacted because of the AI. Is that kind of the case for everyone or are millennials feeling a little more pressured? The Gen Z and millennials are feeling the most pressure from this and the least are the baby boomers. Millennials feel that they would prefer to get a new position if this was to happen as the Gen Z are really concerned about this. Yeah, and I mean, it is a concern. It's it's a scary thing as well. And also what is rising in, alongside AI is contract work. You know, I feel like as a millennial, we don't like those. But this survey says that Gen Z actually likes the contract work. 43% are likely to transition from full-time to contract. That's huge. Yeah, and why is that? Is it more appealing to them? It's partly due to the opportunity to take on variety of work with different companies, learn different skill sets, and connect with more people. That is interesting. And are there ways you feel that there could be uh, room for improvement, really, among generations working with each other? Because as we mentioned, there is tension. So how do we really navigate through that? Everybody is different, and there are, but there are similarities in all of the generations. Salary transparency and often communication. Better communication with the team and each other is key here. And I do want to mention, you mentioned the salary. You know, I feel like a lot of the times, earlier generations or older generations, they haven't really spoken up for what they feel is right or what they feel they deserve. Do you feel like Gen Z is doing that more? They are. We're seeing that a lot more because their career is starting out and they want to make sure they're paid appropriately especially through the pandemic when salaries have increased significantly. Cost of living has, is costing so much more today than it did three years ago. So they're speaking up about it a lot more. As they should. So I think it's safe to say that every generation can learn something from the other, right? Absolutely. Everybody can learn from each other, from the new person that started three months ago and out of university to the baby boomer. And I think we have to have that open mind and great communication as a team. Amazing. That is, I think, the best takeaway from these situations. Sandra Lavoy, Regional Director for Robert Half. If our listeners want some more information or want to read the full findings of this survey, where can they go? At roberthalf.com. And it's our newest survey on multi-generational workforce. 
Amazing, Sandra. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. After the break, the summer movie blockbusters, eh, not so much. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Summer blockbuster season is well underway. Fast 10, The Flash, The Little Mermaid, and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, just to name a few. Fan faves or flops so far? And what about a couple of franchise films hitting the big screen? Indiana Jones this weekend, Mission Impossible July the 12th, and then there's one that stands out and kind of stands alone, Barbie, opening later this month. Here to help us see the light when it comes to sitting in the dark is Cam Maitland, film and content specialist Holly Sweet. Welcome to the feed, Cam Maitland. So great to have you back with us. Oh, great to be here. So several big blockbusters or supposed blockbusters have been released, uh, one of which I saw this past weekend, The Flash. And I have to say, 500 thumbs down on that one. I, I just, and I'm not really, I'm not really sure why. I think it was, it was supposed to be a blockbuster. Not sure whether it was the news about its star that was circulating or yeah. whether it was just such an unlikable film. Yeah, I mean, you're not alone, is the truth. Uh, the Flash has done very poorly. I think there's generally this vibe, other than Guardians of the Galaxy, which did quite well, uh, the past kind of handful of superhero movies have struggled a bit more than usual. Um, Ant-Man, Quantumania, The Flash. Uh, you see something like Blue Beetle that's still forthcoming, and you're like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, Spider-Man's doing great, but that's a bit of a different one. It's animated, kind of more of a family film, and also a movie that won an Oscar. So, uh, you know, just to a, a big movie. So, I don't know. Audiences are down kind of in general. A lot of films are struggling. You know, Transformers is struggling. Even Little Mermaid, which I think did quite well in North America, isn't, you know, it's not making a billion dollars, which is what people want these days. Are people still reluctant to go into movie theaters post-pandemic? Or or is it just I mean, not drawing them to it? I, what's the problem? I, I think it's a bit of a mix. I, I think, yes, you still absolutely probably do have people who, who are a little uh, reluctant with COVID. Uh, we saw a bit of a surge, at least uh, anecdotally here in Ontario, I think. A lot more, more people I know are getting it lately. But I also think it's, uh, you know, tough economic times, and it's not cheap to go to the movies, especially if you have, like, a family. Um, so I, I think that people are being a lot more selective uh, about what they go to. Uh, and I also think we're suffering a lot from um, people, just giant blockbusters, what we've always had. But I think uh, when you make a movie that costs, you know, $500 million and expect it to make double that, uh, that's maybe more of the problem. And I think a lot of the big winners this summer might be a lower budget, unexpected film. Well, and it could be that some of the big winners are yet to be released. Uh, let's talk about one that is just released this weekend, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. B great expectations when it comes to that movie. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's kind of an interesting franchise because I think a lot of people feel a little burnt by Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> but <laughs> so much time has passed since that film now that it feels almost just like uh, this is a whole new ball game. Uh, and I also think... You know, the addition of Phoebe Waller-Bridge is kind of an interesting uh, outreach to a different kind of fandom. Uh, I, I'm hopeful, uh, cautiously optimistic, I guess. Uh, Harrison Ford seems to be having fun. 
which is not always the case with him. So I don't know. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning. I got to tell you, if Top Gun was any indication about how Tom Cruise can bring people into theaters and fill seats, Mission Impossible is going to do just that. And it's just part one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, this is the thing. I think Tom Cruise, of course, through all of lockdown, was kind of filming this movie and reminding people to go to the movies. This is kind of this culmination of all that work get people back to theaters. I love these movies. They seem to be getting better and better. So I'm definitely very curious. I know uh, audience reactions just came out this week, some preview screenings, and it all seems positive. So I'm very excited. And we're, we're turning pink with excitement when it comes to Barbie, which is such an... Un- <laughs> I mean, you don't think of it as a blockbuster, but there's so much buzz about it. It opens July 21st. It's directed by one of my favorites, Greta Gerwig, and it stars Ryan Gosling, great Canadian, and Margot Robbie. It, I don't think it can go wrong, or can it? Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I don't think it can go wrong. Something They've just done such a wonderful job hyping it up. And the thing is, they haven't set crazy expectations. I think the expectation is that this will be a frothy, silly comedy. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. And, and it's like I, we're still in the middle of the press tour. It feels like we're just getting more and more Margot and Ryan, and they're charming. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I don't know. It seems like it would have to screw up something bizarrely <laughs> to not be a huge movie. And it's a family film, too, so it's, it's kind of this wild thing where you know a lot of adults are excited for it, but I'm sure there's plenty of kids that are as well. There is a sleeper, and you kind of touched on this. There, this might be one that, that really wows the crowd that we didn't expect. Oppenheimer, which also opens July 21st. Yeah, I mean, Oppenheimer, of course, has the impossible task of going up against Barbie and seeming like a very different programming. Uh, but Christopher Nolan, as somebody who works in film, I know that a lot of young people, Christopher Nolan is their guy, and they will go to anything he does. Uh, and this has been a passion project of his. And I know that he says that there's all sorts of interesting visuals. He was very obsessed with uh, no CGI explosions. Um, so I think it might be visually quite interesting. It's maybe a, kind of an Oscar movie even. I don't know. It's a biopic of a scientist. And it stars someone that I've never heard of, and I don't even know how to pronounce his name. I'm going to say Cillian Murphy, but that may be oh, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know what? He's very big. Uh, Peaky Blinders is a show people love. Killian Murphy is the uh, the leader of that show. So Excellent. I think he has his fans. So that's a hard C on on. So it's Killian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, you're the expert. I'm just I'm just a theater goer. So <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to Meg to the Trench. I loved the first one. That was was to me a, a superb blockbuster. I think it came out in 2018. Number two is opening on August the 4th. What are your expectations for Meg 2? You know what? This is an interesting one. A lot like uh, Greta Gerwig doing Barbie. Uh, The Meg 2 is by director Ben Wheatley, uh, who is kind of an interesting outsider British director. He's directed a lot of really low-budget thrillers. Uh, People might know him from Netflix's recent reboot of Rebecca. That's probably one of his highest-profile movies. But I'm very curious likes things to be gory and wild, and I hope that the Meg 2 has that spirit. And then there's Gran Turismo, based on a PlayStation racing simulation video game. What are your thoughts and and hopes about it? Yeah, I mean, Gran Turismo is, uh, it seems like an interesting gamble. It's based on a true story of a a guy who was so good at a video game, he became a real car racer. Um, So that's kind of a curious and interesting thing. 
obviously the video game has fans. I think racing has really blown up uh, in North America. A lot of the F1 shows on Netflix, for instance, have really connected with people. So I'm curious how it will do. It seems like a real outside shot of a movie, but they're promoting the heck out of it, and it is an interesting story. So the bottom line is the blockbusters are rolling out. Summer is here. People are hoping that they are going to see magnificent things on the screen. Will it be enough to fill theaters again? I mean, uh, it's, it's tough to tell. I, I kind of hope that there's some, some surprises here. I, I know that there's a lot of, you know, small movies out of stuff like by Southwest that might surprise people. Maybe we'll see a new Mint of Stars. Uh, but maybe we're just going to see a lot of disasters this summer. I also want to ask you, you're like a kid in a candy store when you go to the theater. I know that. Even though it's work, I know that you enjoy it. Which one are Uh, you most excited about as Cam Maitland, just the guy? (laughs) Wow. Uh, Just the guy, I have to say I am a Mission Impossible guy, but I I will uh, shout out one that I have heard nothing but positive buzz about, which is the, the Stephanie Sue comedy Joyride, which comes out July 7th. It just seems to be a dumb comedy, a bunch of Asian-American women in China causing trouble, uh, but it really blew up its by Southwest, and I think uh, a lot of people are very excited for that one. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and hear from you. Thank you, Cam Maitland, for your, your summer look at summer movies and summer good and summer not. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Thanks, Cam. <laughs> All right. Next, how the power of sport is promoting inclusivity. Here's Jim Lang. Well, Hydro One is doing something really cool for Indigenous History Month. They're partnering with the Coaches Association of Ontario to announce 38, that's right, 38 Indigenous coaches who will receive up to $1,500 in funding to promote inclusivity in sports and to continue to break diversity barriers. I think it's a fantastic program and initiative. And to talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by their VP of Indigenous Relations of Hydro One, Penny Favel. Penny, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. We are really excited about the grant program and about Indigenous History Month and Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah, this, I mean, it's left off the page to me when I saw the initiative in the program. Uh, for people maybe who aren't aware, how long has this been going on, Penny? Well, Hydro One's been a sponsor of the Little NHL for over 16 years, but this is the first year that we decided to do something in terms of the coaching grants. We were pretty excited after three years of hiatus of not participating in person um, to, to go in and do something a little different. And that's where we came up with the, with the grants for these amazing coaches. And they're from all across the province, from the far north to you know, southwestern Ontario to York Region and all in between. And the thing to me that's so important in this program, in this initiative, Penny, it's providing the foundation for the coaches to keep teaching these young men and women about the importance of hockey on the ice and, and, you know, being better people off the ice. So I think this goes a long way, far beyond just what they do as a coach. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we look back ourselves to those of us who played sports and coaches are in many cases, one of the first people outside your family who really have a chance to influence your life and teach you values around family, teamwork, um, Building self-confidence and inclusion and sports plays such a critical role. And these coaches give so freely of their time. Um, We wanted to make sure we could support them. 
You know, your job, you're a VP of Indigenous Relations of Hydro One. I'm sure there's a lot of stress and anxiety that goes with it, just trying to do and keep up at the level you expect. But it must feel good. There must be a great job satisfaction, Penny, informing these individuals they've received the grant. It is so exciting, not just for the grant, but the grant is, is really important. And we actually had one of our own Hydro One employees who's a an assistant coach, so we were pretty tickled that he was able to receive one of the grants. But it's also just in participating in the little NHL tournament. I always encourage people to go. Um, our staff, 30 to 40 Hydro One employees, volunteer for the tournament every single year. Um, this was my very first year. I've only been at Hydro One less than three years, so this is the first in-person event for the little NHL. And I can tell you, I'm impressed by the energy level, the commitment of the families, and just how much fun the tournament is. It means a lot to the Hydro One employees who volunteer. Yeah, I have a cottage up north, and I know the kind of work that Hydro One does in the near north and far north, just laying hydro lines into some of the remote communities in the province, and a lot of them Indigenous communities. So there's there's a long, deep history between Hydro One and Indigenous people of this province. Absolutely. We've had a history of well over 100 years of transmission, distribution assets. And, you know, we took a pretty serious look this last couple of years about how we're showing up in reconciliation. And with the history comes the need to take a look at what you've been doing in the past and making sure that when you move forward in reconciliation, it's more than about words or a plan, that you're actually putting action to your words and that you're meaningfully impacting communities and grants like this are a great way of showing up. You mentioned you've been doing this for a year now, Penny. Have, has this made you a, a, just a better professional, better corporate citizen, better, you know, next big captain of industry, and is also a better person in this role of Hydro One? So I can tell, I've been at, I've been in this role for just about three years and I came to it having been at another company in a very similar role and I'm not sure if it makes me um, a better person, but it really makes me feel like at this stage of my career, I'm actually giving back in a meaningful way and making Ontario better. And that really excites me. And I know it excites every member of, of my of my Indigenous Relations team. That's really cool. I'm And I'm looking at some of the names, and there's a name that jumps out to me, Deborah Nolan, Garden River, the Nolan family, for people maybe don't realize in Garden River near Sault Ste. Marie, Ted Nolan, Jordan Nolan, the three Nolans, uh, the Nolan family have deep history and deep roots in Garden River, and it's great to see Deborah Nolan as one of the recipients and coaching the U11 Adam Rec, um, uh, Rec team. Oh, I know. It's so exciting for all of us to see not um, just the NHL players, but the Indigenous NHL players who come out and support the tournament, and of course the Nolan family is a dynasty um, as far as we're concerned. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And for people maybe who want to do more, uh, get involved with this, how can they contact Hydro One to be part of the, A, the little NHL tournament, or be part of this program to maybe do something and to maybe they're inspired by this interview and try to help you out some way, Penny? Oh, you know, we would love to hear from folks through our community investment um, contact center. We also encourage any folks who want to get involved with the tournament to reach out to um, the little NHL tournaments themselves. They're always looking for volunteers. And in terms of this particular um, grant program, 
talk to the uh, coaches of Ontario and talk to anyone here at, uh, at the community investment folks at Hydro One. We'd be more than excited to have you come and volunteer. And there's been so much that's, you know, as a Canadian myself, who just, I, I just honestly didn't know with some of the truth and reconciliation stories, the, um, the finding of, unfortunately, the uh, residential schools. Uh, it's opened the eyes of a lot of Canadians. Are you finding, um, you know, uh, non-Indigenous Canadians are being so much more receptive to what Hydro One is doing with the Indigenous community and trying to be more open to what you're doing as well? Yeah, you know, that's such a, that's such a great observation. Um, with the history comes an accountability and a responsibility, as I said, to look forward and to, to be positive. And I can tell you that in the three years I've been at Hydro One, We've noticed not just within our field crews, those great people who come and get power on uh, when we've had a major storm event, right down to our customer care people, that people are hungry for information, they want to learn. Um, and I'm looking forward to the next three or four years here at Hydro One as we move through our Indigenous Relations strategy and program to bringing uh, reconciliation to Ontario. Well, Penny, you and your team should be so proud of yourself. We just had a Stanley Cup where Zach Whitecloud and the Vegas Golden Knights beat Brandon Montour and the Florida Panthers, two really talented Indigenous hockey players. And there's so many of them that we it's not a big deal anymore. We just, they're all over the NHL. I know, it's so exciting. We were, we were watching that very closely, of course, in my house, not just because it was the uh, playoffs, but because of that little bit of history. And, you know, you think back to Fred Sakamu. Mm. You think back to players like Theo Fleury. I spent a lot of time in Calgary and, Watching that dynamo on the ice was so exciting. Um, and to your point, isn't it nice that we're seeing um, this as a very common thing? And I think this, this, um, that's part of the, the seed for having these, um, this grant for the coaches is because that's where you find those players. This is unbelievable. Hydro One partnering with the Coaches Association of Ontario, announcing 38 Indigenous coaches will receive up to $1,500 in much-needed funding to promote inclusivity in sports and continue to break diversity barriers. She is Penny Favol, VP of Indigenous Relations at Hydro One, doing great work. Penny, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk about this and continued success and looking forward to the next little NHL tournament. Oh, so am I, and thanks so much for reaching out. A pleasure. Take care. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening, and happy Canada Day weekend.